All right. Well, hello, High Point family. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Will, and I have the honor of serving as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. Um, again, I'm getting got emotional like last week. These baptisms keep getting to me. And so really grateful for what God is doing here at High Point Church. Now, today we are in the third week of our multiple week series entitled Habitology. Habitology. And what we are doing in this series is we are looking at habits uh, through the lens of Scripture. We are looking at habits through the lens of the gospel. And today, uh, the habit that we are going to be looking at, the habit that we are going to be studying is the habit of discernment. Or another way to put it uh, is the habit of theological thinking. Now, here's the thing. I believe that this habit of discernment is easily one of the least taught and as a result, one of the least practiced habits in the church today. And it is because of that, that my goal today is not so much to teach you what to think, but how to think. Let go ahead and say that again. In light of the fact that this is easily one of the least taught and least practiced habits in the church today, my goal is not necessarily to teach you what to think, facts, but to teach you how to think, filter. What we're going to discover is that the Bible is just as concerned about how you get to your conclusions than it is about the conclusions themselves, okay? Dr. John MacArthur has a very helpful definition on what biblical discernment means. Look what he says. He says, in its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. According to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for the believer. It is required. So that, that's the definition of discernment. So as I refer to discernment throughout the message, that's what I mean by biblical discernment. Now, here's the thing. I would argue is that if, that, is that if there's ever been a generation that needs to hear a message on discernment, if there's ever been a generation that needs to practice the habit of discernment, it is this generation. Why? Because we live in a pluralistic, relativistic, postmodern culture, a culture that is constantly, nonstop, constantly pushing ideologies and opinions and values and worldviews that are contradictory to the word of God. The problem is, is that many of us don't know that they're contradictory to the word of God because we don't know the word of God, okay? And so I would argue that if there's ever been a generation that needs to address this habit, if there's ever been a generation that needs to regularly practice the habit of discernment, it is this generation. We need this habit more than ever. Dr. John Stott, uh, the late John Stott, here's what he says about this need for biblical discernment among Christians today. He says, there is an urgent need for discernment among Christians. We are often too gullible and exhibit a naive readiness to credit and exhibit a naive readiness. I lost my quote there. Um, we are often, let me read it. Okay, there's an urgent need for discernment among Christians. We are often too gullible and exhibit a naive readiness to credit messages and teachings which purport to come from the spirit world. Unbelief, listen to this, unbelief can be as much a mark of spiritual maturity as belief. We should avoid both extremes. The superstition which believes everything and the suspicion which believes nothing. So in light of all that, today we are going to be addressing the habit of discernment. Now, our passage today comes to us from the New Testament and we are going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through six. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through six. Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth and look what he says. 
He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It's the word of the Lord. So today, in, in light of the, the language that Paul is using here, if, if you look at these three verses, Paul continually uses military language. So, so in light of the language that Paul uses here in this passage, uh, today we are going to look at this passage under three headings. We are going to begin today by looking at the war, then we're going to look at the weapons, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the winner. The war, the weapons, and the winner. So let's begin today by looking at the war, the war. Let me reread what Paul says here in verse three. In verse three, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, here's the thing. In this passage, Paul is talking to a group of people who are lacking discernment. And here's why I know. If you look at the background of the, of the letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians had several issues, but one of their issues was that they didn't think biblically. They didn't think theologically. They didn't practice the habit of discernment. And so in this passage, Paul is writing to them and he is saying, you Corinthians lack discernment. And the reason why he knows that they lack discernment is because false teachers who were preaching a false gospel had crept into the church and the, uh, the, the, the Corinthians were gullible enough and they, they didn't know their Bibles enough to detect this false teaching. And so as a result, they were starting to believe the false teaching themselves. And so ironically, the apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians who struggled with discernment just like you and me. Now, in this section uh, of the passage, Paul essentially informs the Corinthians about three things. And since he informs them, he is in turn also informing us. There's three things that we need to know about this battle uh, for discernment. He tells us what, then he tells us where, and then he tells us who, okay? So the first thing that the apostle Paul does is he tells us what, and here's the what. The what is that we are in a spiritual battle. We are at war. And the reason why we know that is because that's what Paul says in verse three. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So the what there is that Paul needs us to know that we are at war. Okay. Now here's the thing about this war. It's, it's not a political war. It's not a financial war. It's not a, even a physical war. It is a spiritual war because Paul says, even though we walk in the flesh, we wage war in the spirit. It is a spiritual war that we find ourselves in. And here's what's fascinating about that phrase, wage war. In the Greek, it doesn't just mean this one-off battle or scuffle. It literally means in the Greek to, to a, a full-blown military campaign. That's what the word there, wage war, means. It, it literally means to be engaged in, in a multiple battle war. It means to be an active service soldier who is carrying out the commands of their general. So, so get this, Paul is informing us as believers, the ones back then and the ones today, he is informing the church that we are in a war and that war is a spiritual war and it is an all out war between good and evil. We are active service soldiers carrying out the orders and the commands of our general Jesus. That's the what. Now, Paul says something very similar in Ephesians chapter six. When Paul is writing to the Christians in the church of Ephesus, here's what he says to them in verse 12 of chapter six in Ephesians. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul there in Ephesians essentially says what he says here in Corinthians. He says that our battle, even though we are in a battle, it's actually a spiritual battle that we 
find ourselves in. So that's the what. The what is that we are at war. But then after he tells them what, he then tells them where. He tells them where this battle is taking place. This spiritual battle that we find ourselves in has multiple fronts. There are multiple fronts in which, where we are fighting this battle. But according to Paul in this passage, one of the fronts, one of the places that we are having this spiritual battle is in our minds. It's in our thought life. Well, how do I know that? Well, there are certain words that Paul uses that show us that, that the place where this battle is taking place is in our minds and in our thoughts. Look what he says here. There's four words I want to highlight to you that reveal to us that this is a battle of the mind, that this is a battle for your thought life. Look what he says um, in verse five. He says, we destroy arguments. That has to do with thinking. Every lofty opinion, that has to do with thinking. Against the knowledge of God, knowledge has to do with thinking. And then he says, take every thought captive. So in three verses, Paul brings up the idea of thinking and the mind four different times. So, so I don't want you to miss this. Not, not only are we at war, a spiritual war, but one of the places where that spiritual war is raging is in our minds, is in our thought life. So the first thing he tells them is the what, then he tells them where, and the last thing Paul wants them to know is the who. And here's what I mean by who. Paul wants them to know that this spiritual war that's taking place in your minds is against three specific enemies. The first enemy is Satan. The second enemy is the world. And then the third enemy is the flesh. So Satan, the world, and the flesh. This spiritual battle that we are constantly daily partaking in, in our minds, in our thought life, is against Satan, the world, and the flesh. Author Tim Chalice, here's what he says about these enemies that we have to deal with on a daily basis, especially in the area of discernment. Here's what he says. He says, because discernment is a good and noble pursuit, it is one that has been opposed on all fronts. It will continue to be opposed by our sinful natures, by satanic forces, and by cultural influences. As Christians, we must stand firm against all of these forces, trusting in God to equip and to sustain us. For while discernment is a difficult thing, it is one with ultimate benefits. So what the Chimchela says is that we are at war and he mentions there the, the spirit, the flesh, the world and Satan. Those are the three enemies that we are constantly battling against in our thought life, in our minds. Now, here's the thing, and this actually might catch you by surprise. If I were to ask you out of those three, who is the most dangerous, which enemy can cause the most damage, many of us would probably think, well, it's Satan, right? Satan hates us. It has to be Satan, or maybe it's the world. But actually, I would argue that your greatest enemy, the one who has the most power to uh, keep you in spiritual uh, strongholds and bondage, is you. And here's why. I have biblical evidence for this. The reason why it cannot be Satan is because Satan cannot touch you unless he asks for God permission first. Before Satan can do anything to you, he has to go to God. Now, I'm not making that up just because that's what I think. In the book of Job, before Satan can do anything to Job, he goes to God and asks for permission. Then later on in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus goes to Peter and he says, listen, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan has asked me if he can tempt you. And Jesus already knows that Peter's going to fail because he says, hey, after you fall, make sure to stand up and help your brothers. So, so, so both in the Old Testament with Job and then in the New Testament with Peter, we see Satan having to ask permission before he is any, able to do anything to God's people. Why? Because no matter how dangerous Satan is, at the end of the day, all he is is a dog on a leash. And he, only, he goes as far as God allows him to, okay? So don't miss this. The greater enemy is not Satan. The one that can most sabotage your life, the one that can most keep you in bondage is not Satan, is you. Because nobody talks to you more than you. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late British preacher and doctor, he said that uh, uh, the, the, we Christians struggle with passively listening to themselves more than actively speaking to themselves. And so no one talks to you more than you. And so a lot of the warfare that you are experiencing is because of your own flesh. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just if Satan started it, the world was impacted, right? Those are our two enemies. But then they were impacted as well. Their flesh was impacted. So our flesh is easily the most dangerous of the three. And probably the, the primary reason why many of us are still in bondage when it comes to our thought life. Tim Chalice, in that same book on discernment, has to say this about the flesh. He says, as we seek after discernment, he says, as we seek after discernment, a good and godly desire, our sinful natures will fight against us. We will soon discover, listen to this, we will soon discover a part of ourselves that does not want to make clear distinctions between what is good and evil and a part of ourselves that does not want to be committed to what is good and right and true. And so, he says, the first enemy we must overcome in our discipline of discernment is ourselves. So the first truth that Paul teaches us here in this passage is Paul teaches us about the war. There is a spiritual war that all of us are partaking in, and this war is taking place in our heads, in our minds, against Satan, the world, and the flesh. So that's the war. Now, the second thing that I want to look at today is I want to look at the weapons. No war is a war unless there's weapons, right? And so Paul here talks to us about the weapons that are used in this war. Let me reread verse three. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we've looked at the war, right? We've looked at the what, the where, and the who. But now I want to look at the weapons. Paul talks to us about the weapons. Now, here's what's fascinating about this passage, this section on the weapons. Paul says that there are two sets of weapons. There's one set of weapons that is offensive in nature. And then there's another set of weapons that is defensive in nature. Okay. Now, here's the thing. In the battle between good and evil, you would think, especially with how the world around us looks, you would think that the side with the defensive weapons is the church. And the side with the offensive weapons is Satan, the world, and the flesh. But what's fascinating is that Paul says that the defensive weapons belong to our enemies and the offensive weapons belong to us. The church has the offensive weapons. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. In those days, there was two types of battles. There was two types of warfare. There was the head-to-head -head warfare, which would take place on a battlefield, right? There was one army and another army, and they both had generals. So the first type of warfare was head-to-head -head on a battlefield. But the second type of warfare in those days was siege warfare. Now, here's what siege warfare was. Siege warfare was one army showing up at the city wall of a city and essentially taking over that city. And through siege and, and through... Uh, uh, um, overcoming their walls and their fortresses, they would take over that city. So in those days, there was two types of warfare. There's the head-to-head -head warfare, and then there was siege warfare. Paul is talking to us about siege warfare, and he says that the army, the, the side that has the offensive weapons, the army that's on the outside of the walls trying to break in, is not the enemies, the, the, the Satan and the world and the flesh. No, no, no. He says that we, the church, are that army. We are the, on the offensive. We are the ones that are attacking and it's the world, it's the enemy, it's the flesh that is behind the city walls, that is behind the ramparts, it is behind the strong towers. Isn't that fascinating? And here's what's crazy. When you look at scripture, well, you look at the, in Paul's day, anyone who knew anything about military strategy would tell you that the advantage always went with the attacker. 
the advantage always went to the side that was being offensive. Because think about it. If you were the offensive side, if you were the one that had come up to the city wall, you had all your best soldiers ready to go. And all you had to do was get through a barrier and you would overtake the city. It would just take patience and persistence and the right weapons in order to win. But the advantage was always with the offensive side. So it's, it's crazy to me that in this passage, there's two weapons, sets of weapons, offensive and defensive. And the church, us believers, we are the ones with the offensive weapons. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to talk to you about the defensive weapons that our enemies use. And then I want to talk to you about the offensive weapons that we use as believers, as the church. So let's begin with the first set of weapons, which is the defensive weapons that the enemy uses. Now, here's the thing about the defensive weapons. Here's how we know that the enemy uses defensive weapons. Because in the passage, the apostle Paul says that the enemies set up strongholds. That's what he says in verse four. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The enemy, enemies, plural, they set up strongholds. Now the word there, strongholds in Greek, uh, it, it literally means a military fortress, a, a fortified city, okay? So, so Paul says that our enemies, the only weapons that they have are strongholds. But what's beautiful, or what, not necessarily beautiful, what's, what's interesting about this, it's beautiful once we get to the good news, but what's, 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 what's interesting about this is that these strongholds that the enemies set up, they're not made out of brick and mortar, uh, they're not made out of stone and concrete, but they are made from arguments and opinions. Arguments and opinions. That's what these strongholds are made out of. So, so, so let's unpack this a little bit. The, the word there, arguments, it literally means a deceptive, hostile reasoning. What the word argument means. It means a, a deceptive, hostile reasoning that goes up against God and his kingdom. That's what the word argument means, right? Then he says lofty opinions. Now, the word there in the Greek literally means pretension. So here's what it means. A, a lofty opinion, it means to have a false evaluation of yourself, a high evaluation of yourself, to lift yourself up out of arrogance, conceit, and pride, okay? So, so follow with me here. Paul says that these strongholds that the enemies set up are made up of arguments, so head arguments, and heart attitudes, right? That's, that's what the enemy does. So, so the enemy, the, uh, Satan, uh, the world, and the flesh are constantly establishing these strongholds made up of arguments and lofty opinions, made up of head arguments and heart attitude, and they stand them up and try to stop the advancement of God's kingdom on this earth. So, so the word argument has to do with your head, the word lofty, that phrase lofty opinion has to do with your heart. Paul says that people stand up against God because they don't want to, uh, uh, th th it doesn't make sense in their head, but also because they really don't want to believe it in their hearts. Those are the strongholds that the world around us sets up. It's not just the, the, the propositions in their head, it's the pride in their hearts that keeps them from believing God's word that keeps them from trying to advance God's kingdom. Instead, they try to stop God's kingdom from advancing in the world. Now, here's the thing about these strongholds. These strongholds, there are two types of strongholds. There are external strongholds and then there are internal strongholds. So I want to give you examples of both. Okay. So let's begin by looking at the external strongholds. Now, the external strongholds are the ones that are utilized by Satan in the world. The internal strongholds are the ones that are utilized by the flesh, okay? So let's look at the first set of strongholds, which is the external strongholds that are utilized by Satan and the world, okay? Here are the external examples of external strongholds. External strongholds are schemes and structures and strategies that Satan and the world use in order to stop God's kingdom from advancing, so let me give you some examples of those external strongholds. It could be found in music. It could be found in television. It could be found in podcasts. It could be found on, uh, in movies. It could be found on radio. It could be found on social media. These, these arguments 
these, these pretenses, these strongholds can be found through any one of those strategies. It can be found in politics. The, the, the enemy is constantly trying to establish strongholds, head arguments and heart attitudes that stand up against God, that try to stop God's kingdom from advancing in this world. So, so let me talk to you a little bit about music and movies. You may not know this, but a three-minute song is a sermon. A, a three-minute song, a three-minute secular song is a sermon. It's literally preaching a worldview to you. It is telling you, believe this. Whether you know it or not, that's what a song is, okay? Or you think about a movie, or you think about a show, or you think about your favorite podcast, or you think about your favorite personality that you follow, or you think about uh, social media. Every type of media has a motive behind it. And uh, Trevin Wax, who is this author who I really respect, he, he wrote a book that, was ta that talks about the world in which we live. And he said something about media that I found incredibly uh, important for us to know about in a time like this. He says that all the media that you are exposed to is either mirror media or blueprint media. And here's what he means. Whether it's a movie or a show or a song uh, or a video on YouTube or a post on social media, it's either mi a mirror media or blueprint media. By mirror, he, here's what he means. The mirror media is when the media shows you something on TV or in a song or, or you know, on a show that's already true of our culture. It, all it's doing is mirroring to you what's already happening in our culture. That's the first type of media. He says, but the second type of media is probably even more dangerous because it's blueprint media. And here's what blueprint media is. Blueprint media is, it's not true yet, but the world wants it to be true. And so they start literally putting it as a blueprint. Keep seeing this thing. And the more I put this thing in front of you, the more you will get accustomed to it and the more it will become reality. And over time, it will move from blueprint to mirror. You see, but here's the thing, guys. And here's what really bothers me. That Christians, you right now, the person I'm talking to, you, you, your discernment is so low that you consume that content with the same openness and the same teachability that you do a sermon on Sunday. You don't think anything about it. Well, that's my favorite political personality. Everything he says is true. What? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. This really bothers me. It really bothers me that we just take people's, I, I, I had a friend of mine once who, who uh, uh, was an elder at our former church and he sat down with this gentleman who was struggling with a, a decision that we were making in our church that we had theological backing for. And this guy over lunch said to my friend who was an elder, he said, what do you think this political personality would say about this? And he was like, who cares what he would say? The Bible says it's fine. That individual in that moment cared more about what a believer, he was a Christian, cared more about what his favorite political personality had to say about it than what the Bible had to say about it. And so it just, it really bothers me when Christians just take in content with just as much openness and just as much teachability as they would a sermon on Sunday. Guys, that's ridiculous. There's, there's essentially three ways that we can respond to the content around us. I heard one pastor put it this way and I think it was really helpful. There's three R's. You either receive it fully because it's biblical and it lines up with what the Bible says. So the first thing is you receive it fully if it lines up. The second thing you can do is you reject it. It doesn't line up at all. So there's really nothing you can do about it. Like you just have to reject that worldview or that content because it doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Or the third option is to redeem it. There are certain things that, they're, 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 there's things that are good about it and there's things that are bad about it. And so you have to eat the fish and spit out the bones. So you either receive it fully, reject it totally, or redeem it and only take the parts of it that are good for your soul. But we have to be discerning, guys. We have to be. And Leslie Newbegin, uh, the, the, he's a late, uh, he's a British, he, he, he died a few years ago. And uh, Leslie Newbegin was a professor 
uh, he was a doctor and he was a missiologist. And, and he spent a lot, of his t- a lot of his days, a lot of his ministry in India as a missionary. Leslie Newbegin said something about the world that we live in. And it's fascinating because he said this a long, long time ago, okay? He took the example that the world likes to use, um, the example of the elephant. And the, the, I don't know if you ever heard of that example, but it says there's an elephant and, and one religion, one, let's say the Muslims are standing by the trunk and then the Jews are standing by the leg and Christians are standing by its side. And, and we, we're all blind men and we're just touching one part of the elephant and so we think God is this because of the part of the elephant that we are touching. Leslie Newbegin says that that example is extremely arrogant because what postmodern people of our day are saying is that they are the only ones that see that it's an elephant. For, in order for you to use that illustration, you have to think that you have arrived at the level of knowledge that no society or culture ever had before you. And so you know it's an elephant, but those foolish blind religions only know that it's part of the elephant. Here's the thing. One of the things that concerns me is when I see the church falling into arguments that the world uses. So, so for example, one of the things that the world uses is the phrase, my truth. Oh, that's my truth. Oh, no, that's, that's my truth. Well, that's my, my, my truth for you, but, but it's, it's true for me. Listen, guys, there's no such thing as your truth. There's either the truth or a lie. That's how truth works. There's, no, there's, there's your opinion, but not your truth. That's not biblical, okay? Truth is truth. And so one of the things that the, that, that the culture around us says is that there's no such thing as an absolute truth statement. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, here's the problem. That statement is an absolute truth, okay? So, so the argument literally collapses on itself. When they say there is no such thing as an absolute truth, that statement is, a tr- is true, absolutely, and so their argument literally falls apart the moment they say there's no such thing as absolute truth because they're claiming an absolute truth in order to tear down absolute truths. Or, 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 or when our culture says, well, you, you can't share your faith. You, you can't share your faith. There's, there's no way. It is wrong for you to share your faith, right? But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that condemnation of evangelism. They are actually evangelizing when they say that. They're saying, my worldview says you can't share your worldview. So in their desire to, can, they're, they're literally evangelizing against evangelism. They're proselytizing against proselytism, <laughs> proselytizing. Think about that. But we as Christians, since we don't think biblically, we just take those arguments, oh, that makes sense, yeah. My truth, yeah, go figure, yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. It's stupidity. But we have to be aware and we have to think Theologically, we have to practice the habit of discernment. And you know what, guys? I I hate to say this, but we have to even practice discernment when it comes to sermons in the church. I can't tell you how many times I'm on social media and I see high pointers, people who I love, people who I'm the pastor of, and the, and the, the people that they quote or the people that they post, I'm like, really? Like, have you actually heard that person preach? Like, do you know what they're actually saying? here's the thing, uh, many, I don't want to say all, but there's a lot of preaching today that is more of a TED talk than a sermon. When, when you approach a sermon, you either make one of two assumptions about your audience. They're either good people that need resuscitation or they're dead people who need resurrection. A lot of preaching today approaches the audience like they're good people who just need some more advice. Good people who just need a, a little bit more structure around their parenting or their dating. You are not good people. You are a sinner, the Bible says. You are broken. You are depraved. And so if I approach you in any other way than a dead person that needs resurrection, I am not preaching the gospel to you. Okay? Now, I can get into names, but I don't want to be divisive. Here's what I will tell you, though. Go back and listen to the sermon that I preached the third week of our prodigal series a few months ago. Listen to that last sermon, the third sermon of that series. The other uh, documentary that you could look at is The American Gospel. There's a two-part documentary that they came out that exposes the American church today. Watch those two parts of document, that two-part documentary, and that will help you to grow in your ability to discern. There's people who are going to pop up in those documentaries, and you're going to be shocked, okay? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, discernment 
is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. That's what we need to be aware of. So, so, so those examples I just gave you are just the external examples of strongholds. I want to now, I want to give you internal. Remember, the, the external strongholds are the ones that are established by the enemy and by the world. But then the internal strongholds are the ones that are established by us, by our flesh, okay? Now, the internal strongholds that we deal with, that we navigate, here's what we know about them, okay? We either have strongholds that are there because of sin, that are there, so in other words, they're actually sin-based strongholds, or we have strongholds that are there as a result of sin, okay? So those are two types of internal strongholds. The, the ones that are there because of the sin that we currently have, and then the other ones are there as a result of the sin that we currently have. So, so let me give you examples of strongholds that we struggle with because of our sin. Uh, one of them is angry thoughts. Uh, another one is defeated thoughts. Uh, another one is victim thoughts. Uh, another one is bitter thoughts. Uh, another one is anxious thoughts. The Bible says that anxiety, not clinical anxiety, but, but, but spiritual anxiety is, is a sin. So anxious thoughts. All these unforgiving thoughts, lustful thoughts, greedy thoughts, discontent thoughts, entitled thoughts. Those are all examples of thoughts that we wrestle with every single day because of the sin in our life. But some of the thoughts, some of the strongholds that we deal with are not because of sin as, as like actual examples of sin, but are results of sin. So for example, there, there are some of us who struggle with thoughts of worthlessness. There are some of us who struggle with, with thoughts of insecurity, with thoughts of self-hate, with, with, with salt, thoughts of trauma because of our past, lack of trust. See, those are examples of the result of sin in your life. But we are constantly battling these internal strongholds. You know, I was telling our staff earlier this week, uh, during our staff meeting, I tend to do a, a devotional time. And I told our staff that one of the things that the Lord's really been convicting me of, especially in light of this passage, is that a lot of my time is spent either in the moment, is either spent dwelling on the past or dreading the future. I'm rarely in the moment with my wife, with my kids. I, I, I'm rarely in the moment. I spend most of my time, I could be sitting there playing with my daughters, and I'm either dwelling on the past or I'm dreading the future. But I'm rarely in the moment. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow has its own problems. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added on to you. But, 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 but for me, I can tell you that a lot of my time, I'll give you my cycle for preaching. You ready for this? My cycle for preaching is right around Tuesday, I start thinking about my preaching. And for the next essentially four or five days, I am dreading the future. Then I finish preaching on Sunday and from the moment I say amen till about Monday, probably about Tuesday morning, I am dwelling on the past thinking about how bad the sermon was. And then I start the process all over again. Then I go start dreading the, 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 the future again. Okay? So, so what I need you to see is that even that is a stronghold for me. I'm missing these moments with the people around me because I'm so focused either on the past or on the future. Here's the thing, guys. Every day you get up, there's like, it's like you're, in your mind, there's a forecast. There's like a weatherman telling you what the weather's going to be that day. I don't know what your weatherman says, but what your weatherman says will, by and large, determine what your demeanor will be for the rest of the day. Okay? I, I saw this quote uh, on, on one of the, I was at Hobby Lobby not too long ago. Well, probably well, a while ago. It was before quarantine. But, but they had a, there was this, this sign, and it said, today is a good day to have a good day. And I remember thinking, wow, I didn't know I had that much control about over my good days. I thought good days just happened on accident. But today's a good day to have a good day. Why? Because back, like we said on Good Friday, it's all about perspective, right? So, so, so when I approach the day, uh, the, the problem is that many times we find what we're looking for. And a lot of us, we are looking to get let down. We are hoping to get hurt. We are worrying about being wounded. And when you do that, when you're looking to be let down, when you are hoping to be hurt, and when you are worrying about being wounded, you know what happens? You end up finding exactly what you're looking for. Because your thoughts matter. It's like all day we're walking through life and at the bottom of the screen, there's those ticker, you know, the ticker news? 
that you see on, on news channels and on sports channels, that ticker news matters because we're constantly talking to ourselves about what is going on around us. So those are the examples of the internal, of the internal stronghold. So, so we've looked at the, 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 the enemy's weapons, the strongholds, both external and internal. And now I want to look at our weapons. See, according to scripture, we are the ones that are given the offensive weapons. And what I would argue, it, Paul says that it's not human weapons that we use because that's what the enemy wants. The world wants for us to respond to them with the weapons that they're using, with our own strongholds, with our own arguments, with our own lofty opinions. But, but, but Paul says we don't respond with human weapons. We respond with divine weapons that have the power to demolish the strongholds of our enemies. Now, according to scripture, there are two weapons that we as believers get to wield through the power of the Holy Spirit. The first one is the word of God. And the second one is the work of God. So the Bible and the gospel. The, the word of God is a weapon and the work of God is a weapon. And all throughout scripture, we see examples of this again and again. I'm gonna read to you uh, several verses back to back to back to show you how the word of God and the work of God are the only weapons that we as believers have to demolish strongholds. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Same group of people that Paul's writing to here. Verse 18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 3 through 5. Paul says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that, listen to this, your faith might not rest in human wisdom, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says this. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them. Listen to this, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Then Paul says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now stop there for a second. He says, we have the mind of Christ. So, so get this, part of our spiritual progress, part of our, our, of our spiritual maturity Part of our sanctification, which we talked about last week, as we get under the yoke with Jesus and learn from him and walk with him and become like him, is we start to develop the mind of Christ, which makes sense because at the beginning of this series, we looked at Romans 12 and Paul says, do not be conformed to the world around you, but instead be transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. And then the word repentance in Greek means to change one's mind. And so we see it again and again and again. The Bible wants to change your mind from a worldly mind, a human mind, to the mind of Christ. Then in Romans 1, 16, here's where we see the work of God. We've looked at the word of God. Here's where we see the work of God. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then the last one I want to look at is back to uh, the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 through 4 says this. Paul actually puts the word of God and the work of God in one passage. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And this is fascinating. Verse four is just crazy to me. Look what it says. In their case, so in the case of the people who are unbelieving, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds, strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so what we see there is that the word of God and the work of God are needed if we are going to have any sort of progress in this world. 
Because at the end of the day, the enemy has literally blinded the minds of the unbelievers and has put them in spiritual captivity. He has put them in spiritual strongholds. What they think is a defensive fortress is actually a prison cell. And so the, the, the word of God and the work of God have the power to demolish these strongholds and release these people from captivity, starting with us first. So, so here's the thing. Uh, John Piper, who's a pastor who I really respect, uh, John Piper, uh, uh, he, he did this podcast uh, not too long ago. And, and they asked him, they said, what would you say to a 20-year-old John Piper? Like, what would you say? And he said, I would tell him six things. I'm not going to tell you the six, but there was one that stood out to me. He said, I would tell 20-year-old John Piper to read your Bible every single day. He said, listen to this. He said, reading your Bible is more important than sleeping, eating, or kissing your wife or your spouse. He said, if, in other words, if you have time to sleep, to eat, or to kiss your spouse, you have time to read the Bible. And the Bible is more important than all of those combined. That's what he would tell 20-year-old John. Why? Because the more you study the Bible, the more you are able to discern what's true and what's false. I, I, there was a study done by Lifeway a few years ago, and they took a thousand Christian families and they studied what teenagers did once they graduated high school. Some of them went off to college and never came back to church. And some of them went to college and stayed in church and stayed in their walk with Jesus. And in the study, the goal was to figure out what was the thing, what was the determining factor that kept students from either walking away or staying in the church. And the number one determining factor by a country mile, not even close, was that students were, were the teenagers who read the word of God privately in their own life. Not just Sunday morning, not just what their parents read to them, but it was the students who were in the word of God daily that were most likely to stay in the church. And number three, ironically, were the, the students who avoided secular music. Think about it, what I said earlier, right? Sermons, songs are sermons. The ones who avoided secular music. I'm not saying that to be legalistic. I still listen to secular music. But you know what the difference is? Now when I listen to it, when I first became a Christian, part of the reason why it took me so long to grow in my faith was because I got rid of everything but my music. And I kept hearing these worldviews and I kept hearing these sermons. I still listen to some of that music, but now I listen to it with a filter and not with this openness and this teachability that I used to listen to it. It's a different way of taking in content, Okay. Here's what we need to see. Once you understand the word of God, all of a sudden, your mind, the way I heard it described is that your mind is like a conveyor belt. So you work at a factory and you are part of the inspection team and your mind's like a conveyor belt. You can't control what comes down that conveyor belt. What you can control is what you do with it. A lot of us, we have a thought, we're like, well, it's too late. I might as well dwell on it. It's already there. No, you have total control of what you do with it. And so what we do is the, the, the thought comes down the conveyor belt and we have a choice. Do I dwell on this? Do I accept this? Or do I inspect it through the lens of God's word, through the, the lens of God's work? And if it doesn't add up, then I give it over to Jesus. And Jesus takes it captive. I don't take it captive. Jesus takes it captive. That's how we have to think. That's, that's how we have to process. Okay. One of the things that happened during the gold rush, in, in the gold rush, as, 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 as America was spreading west, they were finding all this gold. But one of the phenomenons that happened was this thing called fool's gold. They would find these things, and they, these rocks, and they would look like gold. And people would go to the bank and then discover that it wasn't gold. And so what they had to do in order to make sure that it was gold, they would have to bring actual gold with them and then compare. Because there was two things that gold did. There was two ways, two tests. The first test was to rub the gold on fabric. Gold is, is, is made in such a way that it literally leaves this yellow tint on fabric when you rub it up against fabric. That was one test. The other test was to hit it, hit it up against a rock or some, some hard surface because gold is soft enough that it dents. And so what they had to do in order to determine what was counterfeit is they had to bring the genuine article with them. But for many of us as Christians, since we don't know the genuine article, then we can't detect the counterfeit. You know, one of the things that I found fascinating, and then I'll move to the last point is this. When I was preaching on race a few weeks ago, um, I, have, I had some pushback from certain people, not a lot of people, but from certain people. 
And what I found so interesting was that their pushback, get this, was that my response was too spiritual. I over-spiritualized this really important conversation. So essentially what those people are asking is this. We want you to use worldly arguments and worldly weapons against these worldly strongholds. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we've been given weapons and those weapons are the word of God and the work of God. So my job, the thing that, listen, the thing that's going to destroy strongholds is not your wokeness, is God's word and God's work. That's the weapon and weapons that we are supposed to use. So we've looked at the war, we've looked at the weapons, and I want to conclude today by looking at the winner by looking at the winner. Look what it says in verse five and six. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the the final question that we have to wrestle with is this, who won the war? Right? That, that, that's, whenever you hear about a battle or a war, the most important question is, who won? Am I on the winning side or am I on the losing side? And I think the reason why this question is so important is because many Christians right now, we feel like we are on the losing side because of everything that we see in the world around us. But here's what's so crazy. When you look at scripture, when you look at the battle between good and evil, there are four specific moments that this battle was at its height. Okay, I'm going to tell you about the first and the last one first. The the battle begins in a garden, but it ends in a lake. So the the battle begins in the garden because in Genesis chapter three, Satan shows up and he tells Adam and Eve, he doubts the word of God, right? Because these strongholds, it says that they are set up against the knowledge of God. So Satan is always coming after God's word. And unfortunately, Satan knows God's word more than we do, right? So so, so it starts in the garden because Satan shows up and he tells Eve, how do you know that God is good? Did God really say? That's where it started. And we know in light of uh, the Bible in Revelation, it ends in Revelation chapter 20 because in Revelation 20, we are told that Jesus throws uh, the, the serpent, which is Satan, and all his angels into the lake of fire when it's over. So it starts in a garden and it ends in a lake. But here's what I want you to know. There are two moments in the middle that I think are very important for our conversation today. There are two other showdowns that happened between Jesus and Satan. Uh, the first one is in the desert and then the second one is at the cross. Here's what happens in the desert. In Luke chapter four and in Matthew chapter four, Satan shows up and he starts to attack Jesus with the word of God. Again, because he knows the word of God better than we do. He quotes the word of God to Jesus. He misinterprets it and tries to get Jesus to sin against God. He tries to get Jesus to, to veer away from the plan. And one of the things that Satan says to Jesus is Satan says to him, he puts him up in this high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, look, all you have to do is bow down to me and I will give give you all the kingdoms. I will give you all the power. I will give you all the authority. Now, what commentators say that it's really easy for us to miss is that the reason why Satan tries to give Jesus those things is because what Satan wants is to keep Jesus from the cross. He wants to give Jesus a crown without a cross. He wants to give Jesus authority without atonement. And he knows that if all Jesus does is is win the battle in in the wilderness, then all we have is an example. But if Jesus goes to the cross, now we don't just have an example to follow. We have a savior to believe in. Listen, Jesus Christ showed up not just to change what you think, but to change what you believe. He came not just to to convince your head, he came to convert your heart. The reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross is because Jesus knew that we needed much more than an example to follow. We needed a savior to believe in. He knew that we needed much more than just to have our heads convinced. We needed to have our hearts converted. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross because he knew that the ultimate battle, that the ultimate stronghold, that the ultimate enemy was Satan, sin, and death. And at the cross, Jesus dealt with all Three. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus did the work he did. 
No, so, so think about this. Think about this. Here's what this means then. This is why this is so beautiful to me. If Jesus Christ was faithful and victorious to defeat the greater enemy and to destroy the greater stronghold, then we know that he will be faithful and victorious over the smaller enemies and over the smaller strongholds of, of fear and worry and greed and anxiety and discouragement and worthlessness. Jesus will be faithful with the smaller ones because he was faithful with the bigger one. Come on, church. Come on. And so the answer to the question on who ultimately won, Jesus won. He won decisively. He won totally. He won completely. Jesus Christ won the war. So the battle still rages, but the war is over, and it will be totally over in Revelation. Here's the thing. We, we have to be careful when we are in a battle with the enemy because it says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, I believe, that, that, that Satan is a roaring lion. That's what it says. It says that Satan is a roaring lion, and he, he prowls around looking for someone to devour. I'm not an animal person. Anyone that knows me knows I'm not an animal person. But I've watched enough uh, uh, animal shows to know that the one thing that a lion is scared of is a bigger lion. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. And in Genesis, we are told that he is not only the lion of Judah, but that the scepter, the victory, the power will never depart from his hand. And so Satan is a lion, but in Jesus, we have the greater lion. We have a stronger lion. Come on, church. Come on. That's why there's victory. You start believing that, that'll tear down your strongholds. That's what it'll do. It will. It will, because now, once you understand what Jesus came to do, that he came not just to convince our heads, but to convert our hearts, all of a sudden, it deals with the arguments of your head and with the arrogance of your heart. It says in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come to liberate the captives. He has come to set the oppressed free. So, so get this, in the gospel, we go from being captives to being more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says in the, in the Bible that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Come on, church. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, get this, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what gates are. They are, they are defensive weapons. The gates of hell. Hell's not coming at us. We are going at hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Man, come on. We talked about that, that, that the word of God is a weapon. We talked about that the work of God is a weapon. But in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says there's one more W. There's one more weapon that God uses. There's one more place where God's power is made perfect, and it's in our weakness. It's not just the word of God. It's not just the work of God. It's in the weakness of man. When I admit that I am just a soldier and that he is the commander-in-chief, when I admit that, he, that, that Satan is Goliath and that Jesus is David and I'm one of the scared Israelites and that his victory becomes my victory, not because of what I do, but because of what he does, man, then all of a sudden I can admit my weakness and God's power is made perfect in my weakness. So to the degree that I can admit I'm weak, to that same degree God can fight for me. That's why it says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. The more I know him, the, the, the Hebrew there means to, to be still means to put your arms at your side. You're not defending yourself. You're not fighting for yourself. Your arms are at your side because Jesus won the war. And if he won the war, then he will also help you win the battles. He will be faithful in the smaller ones because he was faithful in the greatest one. So here's what that means. True discernment is not found in a list of precepts or principles. True discernment is found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, if you're sitting here today and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, you're, you're sitting here today and you are struggling with your own strongholds, they might be external. 
They might be internal, but you are struggling with your own strongholds. You are struggling with your own bondage. I'm here to tell you that in Jesus is where true freedom is found. I pray that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. All you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. You just pray, say, Jesus, become the Lord of my life and the Savior of my soul. Tear down these strongholds, the the biggest ones and the smaller ones for your honor and for your glory. That's all it takes. And so I pray that today would be the day that you do that. If that's you and you want to pray to receive Jesus, I would love for you to text the word high point to the number 97000. And then for everyone who is participating in church at home, um, in a few minutes here, we're going to have the words, the, the questions come up. Um, and I look forward to hearing about all the different discussions that you will have about this very important habit of discernment. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and we thank you that the Bible doesn't tell us to just have blind belief, but the Bible tells us to have critical thinking. We don't turn our brains off when we enter Christianity. We have to turn our brains on. I pray, Lord, for the discernment of our people. I pray that you would grow us in the habit of discernment for your honor and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.